so bored You need to walk the other way I tell you once more Please get out of my way I don't want you no more We're done here, boy Hello and welcome to Women Leading in Cannabis. I'm your host, Kira Reed. Thank you for joining us. Our guest today is Leah Heiss, president of Gemini Twin Consulting. Welcome to the show, Leah. Thanks so much, Kira. It's wonderful to be here. Leah is an experienced executive, regulatory attorney, and thought leader in the cannabis industry. She has held several C-level positions and has successfully exited three companies one through acquisition, creating a more than 10x return for investors, and two through IPO. She is passionate about creating an inclusive environment for all participants in the industry. She has recently served as the Chief Administrative Officer of Ascend Wellness Holdings. Her focus on building scalable infrastructure assisted the company's growth in its human resources from 73 employees to more than 1,300 in less than 18 months. And from 19 million in revenue in 2019 to a 1.6 billion dollar market cap on IPO in May of 2021. Wow. She also had the privilege of leading the COVID-19 task force for the company, generating procedures that allowed the company to not only remain operational during the pandemic, but to scale more rapidly than any other multi-state operator in the United States. Leah is a supporter of many businesses in the industry. In addition to her work scaling companies, she is the founder and the president of Gemini Twin Consulting, an LLC helping operators scale their companies, and is a strategic advisor and part owner in the Cannabis Science Conference and Safe Arbor, a pre-market contactless delivery system. Wow, I am so honored to have you as my guest today, Leah. Thank you so much for having me. I think these types of podcasts are very important, especially for females in the industry to learn that there there are places for us uh, to lead. Um, I hope that there's more opportunities available in the future. I intend to create more of those opportunities for other females and, and certainly other minorities. And I'm privileged to be here. Thank you so much. I, I love that you've started the show off with that because it gives us a lot to dig into today. But let's start at the beginning so that we can get to know you a little bit better. Where did your career start and how did you find yourself today working in the cannabis industry? Sure. Um, so my career started as a prosecutor. I was a prosecutor for the federal government. I prosecuted people who killed, harmed, and harassed marine mammals and violated commercial fisheries regulations. Um, but in 2001, I got very sick with a disease called chronic pancreatitis, and I was told that I would not only never be able to work again, but that I probably would not survive five years. Um, my children were 18 months old at the time, so I went home and took care of my twins with the intention that I was going to not survive those those five years. Um, obviously, I did survive, thankfully. And in 2013, my doctor at the time told me that my pancreatitis could be helped, he believed, by 
cannabis. I was surprised. I had never been a cannabis user. And so I did a bunch of research and what I found about the plant amazed me. And I started to explore using it for myself and for my family members to reduce the inflammation in my body, remove my addiction to opiates uh, because there is no cure for pancreatitis and they just give you opiate pain medication. Um, And it gave me the ability to go back to work. So I started in Maryland and the intention was to create a law firm uh, aspect to my husband's law firm that would do just cannabis law and that I would help people get licenses in the state of Maryland. And, and that was my initial intention. And, and what happened was I started to consult with companies and help them build infrastructure and decided to apply for a license myself. We won the dispensary license in Maryland and I built that dispensary and then sold it, transferred it to Forefront Ventures who turned it into a mission dispensary. And then I became the chief experience officer for mission and the chief compliance officer for Forefront Ventures. Um, I stayed there for about, gosh, it was almost two years. And then moved on uh, to Ascend to be their chief compliance officer and ended up being their chief administrative officer and scaling that company uh, to where it is today in, in just a short 19 months. And then I decided that I needed to take a little bit of a sabbatical break. Uh, And so I'm just consulting right now. And I'm consulting several incredible companies in the cannabis industry and helping them scale. Um, I love every bit of your response, especially the part where you spent part of your career defending marine animals for the federal government. That is incredible. So I can see the thread of where your compassion and empathy is really led you to wanting to help women in the industry. Um, but I'm 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 sorry to hear that you found your way to cannabis through illness. But thank goodness you did. And it's really a story that many women in this industry have to tell. And I'm so glad that you did find cannabis. And I'm glad that we have you now in the industry. You've done a lot of things just based on your bio that are really, really impressive. And I want to talk to you about the part of the industry that is really kind of like a black box for most women in cannabis, which is mergers and acquisitions and fundraising. Um, In fact, at an event I hosted over the weekend, a few women had put together a song to um, the tune of Girls Just Want to Have Fun to Girls Just Want to Get Funded. Isn't that the truth? (laughs) Right. So what has it been like for you as a woman, both before cannabis industry, where you worked for the federal government? I don't know how involved you were in mergers and acquisitions and fundraising there, but you have been a lot in this industry. So what was it like for you as a woman pre-cannabis doing that? And what has it been like for you as a woman now in the cannabis industry working in this part of the the sector? of the financial sector? So pre-cannabis, I didn't do any capital raising at all. I, um, I did build a telemarketing company, not a telemarketing company, a um, network marketing company. I, I sold a, a skincare called Arbonne and I built a sales team and was doing about a million dollars a year in sales. Um, but it was specifically sales-based and those network marketing type companies are attractive to females specifically because it's difficult to raise capital 
uh, to start your own venture and because it gives you a blueprint to create your own company. Um, that was something that was attractive to me and was something that was attractive to the people that I was selling the business opportunity to. Uh, in cannabis, the struggle for females and, and uh, other minorities to obtain capital is real. Uh, the, all of the capital that was raised by any of the companies that I worked for were done by men, uh, primarily males. Uh, there were investor relations people who may have been female, but the primary financial CFO guidance, uh, that type of thing was done by men, unfortunately. And not unfortunately, but it's just, it is... It is the nature of the beast. The number of females working on Wall Street in hedge funds, in financial roles is declining. It has been declining for, for, for years. Um, and we're seeing that equivalent at limited access to capital now affecting an emerging industry. And it it is very concerning and it needs to change. There needs to be better vehicles for females and people of color in, to capital. We need to come up with ways to do that. And I'm not sure if that will happen until we have some federal oversight. There are many states that have started to pass diversity laws like the state of Illinois uh, requiring people to to do social equity incubators and that type of things. But ultimately, those social equity in incubators tend to become vehicles for companies that are already established to not really help those social equity applicants. They're really just building their band on the back of uh, a <laughs> disadvantaged population in order to... Um, further their brand. And I, I understand why they're doing it, having sat in an MSO seat. Uh, the MSOs do want to help. They do recognize that they, they are the ones that have access to capital uh, and that the social equity environment is the ability for them to be able to get more access to licenses, which is what they need. Um, but I just, we aren't, we aren't there yet. I'd love to see funds that really put value onto whether or not it was a social equity play. And we're very focused on that um, and really understanding that there is a true ability of all minorities to develop robust companies. And in fact, you're not going to develop a sustainable company without them, without us. You're just not. Well, why do you think with all of the pressure with Me Too and Black Lives Matter, why are numbers of women and minorities in finance slipping instead of improving? I think it is part of the systemic racism and sexism that's gone on for generations. As we can look across the board at the leadership of multi-state operators and a lot of these companies and the access to capital is sits in that white male base um, because they've had access to capital for generations. And, and it's, it's much easier for them to reach out to their friends who have millions of dollars or know someone who has millions of dollars and then pull all those millions together 
because we've created this classist, uh, patriarchal society. Um, I think it is the way it is. And unless someone says this has to change, I don't know that we're going to see any real change. I do know that uh, recently, I believe it was the SEC or might have been NASDAQ, is saying that companies will not be, no longer be allowed to be listed in the United States on the stock exchange if they do not have diverse boards. And I think that's something, yeah, that's something that can really start to change what these companies look like. Because as these boards get more diverse, the leadership teams will get more diverse. We won't just see diversity at the hourly level or the lower levels. We'll start to see diversity really take place inside of these leadership teams. And that's where it needs to be. And I hope that it ends up also with diversity of thought. You know, we've just heard about ExxonMobil having to put climate activists now on their board. And, you know, if if you've got a bunch of people who are diverse but think the same and nothing ever changes. So we need diversity of thought up at those levels as well. Absolutely. Right. So what has your experience revealed to you that you know, that we have a lot of women in this industry who are trying to raise money or do really big things with their companies, but they cannot seem to get it off the ground. What are they missing? What has been your secret sauce that you are able to create so many scaled businesses, but so many of the CEOs who are women in our industry are just, they can't pull the funds together. They can't hire the right people. They get pushed out of their companies. What are we missing? I mean, I think for me, I mean, even raising the capital that was raised, I still had to partner with men to get it done, right? So it is that partnering with the white male um, because diversity includes white men as well as all all people in order for us to have diverse thought. Um, but it is difficult. It's something that I've been struggling with trying to help some of the female-owned companies that I consult with to get funded and watching the difference between what a female owned company can do compared to what a male owned company can do in terms of having the ability to access capital is astounding. The females go through every accelerator, every incubator, apply for every um, minority type loan that they can get and still struggle and the men go out and ask their next door neighbor's brother for $10 million and they turn around and, and get it on great deal terms and every, and everything moves along and they get to market faster. Um, ultimately, the lack of access to capital is what's holding minorities across the board back in this industry. Because the more money you have, the faster you can scale. If you can't, if you have access to tens of millions of dollars, you are going to be able to scale your company and hire the staff that you need to do uh, very rapidly. Scale has everything to do with capital. So what advice do you have for women who are stuck in that place between I need the capital to grow my money, but I can't find it. And keeping my business going the way that it is and growing slowly. I mean, is scaling just something that happens when you've got a lot of money? Or are there ways to manage your business 
so that it continues to support what you've got going on, but it doesn't mean you have to shut down if you don't get that funding. Right. Um, you know, there's certainly ways to scale without having massive amounts of capital. And I've seen people completely bootstrap their companies. Um, but at some point, you're going to have to, in order to scale, if you want to scale rapidly, you're going to have access to capital. Now, you can have slower scale, and slower scale is okay. You don't have to scale in 18 months to a billion-dollar company. It may be more sustainable not to scale that rapidly to make sure that you have all of the infrastructure in place and doing it a little bit more slowly and building more slowly and really identifying risks may be more beneficial long term. Um, it just depends on what the particular business model looks like, what their access to licenses are, if they're a plant touching business, if they're not a plant touching business, what do their margins look like? Is it a um, cash intensive company to build or is it a company that really is almost service-based uh, where you don't need a ton of cash? You can, you can build a consulting company, for example, with very little money. Um, it's just about networking and getting those contacts so that you can build that consulting company and uh, use your expertise to, to help other people. And as you, as you build those contacts, then utilizing those contacts to help the other people that you're consulting as well. That's good advice. So you've been part of creating multi-state operators. Mm -hmm. What are some of the positive things that surprised you about the process and what challenges were you not prepared for? What surprised me about the process, especially in this industry, is, is how willing people are to wear multiple hats, to really do whatever it takes, and to really put aside their lives, their health and wellness, everything to focus on getting a company rapidly scaling. Um, now, I'm not saying that's healthy. That's also something that was a challenge, right? Well, it's one of the reasons why I'm taking this, I'm putting it in air quotes, sabbatical, is because I was spending so many hours pre-IPO to get the company to where it needed to be to, to do that and to build the infrastructure. It, I was exhausted. I just, we have to be very, very careful. Challenges that surprised me, certainly COVID. That was a shocker. But again, the team pulled together to make sure that the company could stay operational in a manner that our employees would stay healthy. Uh, we set up a ton of protocols. Uh, that was a, actually a ton of fun. It was very challenging, but it was, it was a lot of fun, especially with all the diverse guidance from the WHO and CDC and individual states, municipalities, just pulling all of that together. Um, that was very challenging and very interesting. And some of the surprises, I think, for me in terms of building multi-state operators have been the inconsistency inside of governments in the way they enforce their cannabis laws, policies. Um, a lot of times the regulations themselves are not followed the same way by any particular investigator. There's no cohesiveness to the regulatory process right now in any of these states, and it makes it incredibly difficult for the companies and the employees to understand 
what they need to do to comply with these very, very, very confusing regulations. So you've got from state to state, the regulations are so wildly different that you can't you know, become compliant in one state and expect that to carry over. Have you found that California or Colorado, or there's one state that has the most rigid regulations that you then can, well, if, if, you know, if we can satisfy California, we can satisfy everybody or are they just so different that you just, you have to t- approach each one differently? They are very different, but you know, if you can follow Illinois or Massachusetts, interesting, you may be able to use that as a base, but you still have to, no matter where you're located, you have to identify the municipality you're in, uh, the city, the county, the state, because it's all buried on top of there. So you you have to worry about what the cannabis regulations in a particular state are, but you also have to find out if what the zoning laws are and does the municipality need it and do they have specific requirements? Do they require a host community agreement? Do we do you as the company have to pay money to the municipality to even be in the specific municipality? Those are actually things I'd like to see go away. I think they're stigma, um, stigmatizing. I don't think that we need to be paying communities or should be paying communities to host our businesses. It's it's an, another unfair restriction upon our our industry. It's a very difficult industry to begin with already with lack of access to capital, the amount of money you pay out in federal income taxes, especially as a plant touching business, because you can't deduct anything but cost of goods sold. Uh, It's an incredibly expensive business to run, which is also why it's, it's harder for people that don't have access to capital because you don't have the ability to carry that business until it becomes cash flowing because you're paying so much in taxes. Mm -hmm. So how are you seeing that this is unfair? fairly pushing women out of the industry. There is the hurdle of being able to get the money, but what else is standing in the way of women really being able to do this? I don't feel that the companies are hiring a lot of females. I don't think that it's a priority. I think it's a talking point for sure. I think that every company has a talking point that they want to build a diverse company. But when you look across the board, the reality of what that means, they don't. You know, it's certainly easier to take the first couple of candidates that come your way. They're qualified. They're good. But sometimes you have to go and dig and really look for a very qualified candidate that's that's diverse. Uh, they're not often as easy to to find, especially in positions like a grower or a delivery driver, for example, I'm, I'm working with a company right now and, and they hire retired state police officers. That's their business model. But retired state police officers are predominantly white men. So do you change your entire business model, which has, uh, which has other benefits so that you can create a more diverse workforce? Or do you focus diversity on the corporate level and then just realize that you've set up this model where on the hourly level, you're not going to have as much diversity. It's a challenging problem. So you started as the uh, CEO of Women Grow. I did. 
why did you decide to do that? And what did that experience teach you about the differences facing women in the cannabis industry versus other industries you've been in? I decided to do that because I, I so strongly believe that there is a place for women in the industry. And at the time that I took that role, we were seeing that females were at about a 28% level of executive positions across the industry. That number has slipped. The, the last number I heard was 8%. Um, I, I think, and that's disgusting. Um, I think what we're seeing both with COVID and with this industry generally is that women are not going into plant touching roles in particular. Uh, and there's a tendency for females and even inside of plant touching roles that they are put into like the human resources bucket or the marketing bucket, which isn't bad you you just got put into a cost center, right? So you become a cost center, you are not developing revenue for your company, and then you become a dispensable resource because you're not bringing in revenue. Uh, it makes it very difficult. Uh, women grow. I would love to see a resurgence of a company like that, a company that really wanted to and believed in growing and providing opportunities for the industry. Uh, the biggest thing I learned about uh, about anything in terms of women grow was that networking means a lot in in this industry in particular. Uh, I think COVID really put a damper on networking. Lots of people tried to create different environments for us to have connect connectivity to each other. But at the end of the day, the cannabis industry is a community and Women Grow really taught me the power of that, of the community and being connected and being part of something that's bigger than, than all of us combined. Well, there is an organization that's doing that and it's called Women Empowered in Cannabis. Love it. And we've got, uh, Lots of ways to interact with women and lots of ways we support women, including the event that we had this last weekend. Um, but you know, I agree with you and you know, we're, women need so much more support than even, you know, women grow and women empowered in cannabis and all of the other incredible regional communities that spring up to support women locally. It's just still not enough. And I'm, you know, it's one of the things that, you know, I'm curious to know, do you think that federal legalization will change that? Will it make it worse for women and minorities or will it make it better? I'd like to say that they that the federal government will create some type of regulatory schema that it will actually be beneficial. But given what we've seen in other industries, I don't know that we'll be any more successful unless there's a mandate and it's frustrating. Okay. So on the, on the, it is very frustrating and it, uh, you know, I've been asking myself and, and my community this question recently is, do we even know what it looks like to win? Do we know what it looks like and what it feels like? What would the industry look like if there were 40% of women in C-suite positions in the industry? If 30% of women in cannabis were getting funded, their companies were getting funded, what would the industry look like? I think we would have a much more empathetic industry. I think we would have an industry that cared more about inclusive, inclusivity uh, than we do now. I think we would, we would have 
businesses that were building places where you really wanted to work, not something that's just about the exit, but a long-term sustainable company that somebody wanted to operate for numerous years and they really, really cared about the culture and lives of their employees. They listened to their employees, they made it diverse, they communicated with them on a regular basis, they learned from their mistakes, they didn't manage by bullying and fear, but more by collaboration and community. Um, I think we would have a warmer, less stressful industry if we had more inclusivity. Mm, I love that vision. That's something to definitely hold and work for. And I, you know, I really agree with you on the fact that work environments would be just so much better. We would have less turnover. We would have more profit. We would have more loyal employees. And that would turn into more loyal customers as well. It absolutely conveys. An employee that is unhappy in their workplace is not going to be a productive employee. You're probably going to get less than two hours a, a day out of an unhappy employee. It behooves the company to think of their employees first. and the leadership teams of companies need to remember that we work for our employees. They don't work for us. Mm. Say a little more about that. There's a, a lot of companies that I see in the industry and I've, I've done a lot of recruiting in my time in, in order to bring people into these, these companies. And it is very easy to go inside of another cannabis company and pluck someone out of it because the odds are very good that they are not happy in their role. Um, either they are not paid enough, they are not heard, they are not given the uh, credit for the work that they're doing. Perhaps their, their leader is taking the credit for all of the work that they're doing. I find that people feel incredibly devalued in this um, in this industry. They feel as if they're just a cog and that they have no ownership in what they're building, that they have no ability to truly build what they would like to build. Um, and even people that are sitting on the, the C-suites don't feel that they have a voice and that their voice matters. And if we don't create companies that allow people to feel connected to their workplace and that it is a place that will act in their best interest, then we are not going to have sustainable companies long-term. Um, I think this is something that's just not, that's across the U.S. generally. Um, a lot of us think of, oh, Amazon must be a great place to work, but then you hear that it's horrific or um just other companies that you think might have a great workforce culture because they're putting it out there and saying they do. But if you pull back just one layer of the onion, you're going to find that the, their employees aren't happy. And it's it's something that, that needs to be changed nationwide across the board. I agree. And, you know, it looks as if COVID may be forcing that shift finally where the corporations are not the ones in control, but the workers are. And I just saw something on the news last night that now in a lot of states, worker or employers are saying, okay, well, we'll pay you more and we'll give you better benefits. Just come back to work. Yep. I think COVID helped 
in a lot of aspects. I also think it hurt in a lot of aspects. I'm a big proponent of remote work. I think people that are remote workers have a tendency to be more productive and less dis- distracted. But what also happened during COVID was, A, you were locked at, locked up and there was not a lot to do, but it actually increased the amount of work that people were doing. So their their pay decreased. And I know my my work doubled in during COVID. And and you were paid the same, right? So you're getting paid dramatically less for a massive amount of work and an increased amount of stress on your body, on your family, on your life. Um, it's something that we're going to have to watch very carefully and create a balance. Agree. What are you most looking forward to in 2021 and 2022? Travel. I miss traveling mm-hmm. so much. Um, I am also looking forward to getting back to networking events and seeing everybody face to face and and shaking hands and uh, just being able to be with other people that are interested in building cannabis, uh, the cannabis industry as a community. I'm I'm very excited to take part in those those things. Is there anything else that you want us to know about your work for women or minorities in the industry before we go? Just that I, it is always on the top of my mind, ways in which I can help build a more diverse industry on all levels, and that I am open to helping people in, in any way I can. I, I mentor a lot of females in the industry just because I think it's important for us to build a community and, and help each other with our knowledge base, and I'm, I'm happy to help any listener. That is so generous. Thank you very much, Leah. You're welcome. Where can women find out more about you and Gemini Consulting? Uh, I don't have a website, so I'm really low-key here. Um, I, you can find me on LinkedIn at Leah Heiss. And if women are considering your help scaling up, can you give us a quick pitch on what they can get from Gemini Consulting? Sure. I mean, you can. it depends on the, the project scope, but you could get everything from how to staff, how to build out verticals, what does your idea look like, help with developing pitch decks for fundraising, pitch practicing, recruiting for leadership teams, helping build SOPs, build the infrastructure for the company. Just depends on project scope. What you need. Basically, Leah will help you get your business in order. (laughs) Yes. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Leah, for your time and for sharing your journey with us today. Thank you. It was really wonderful to have you, and I really appreciate your inspiration today. If you haven't yet joined the Women Empowered in Cannabis community, go to our brand new membership portal at womenempoweredincannabis.com. There you'll find lots of information on our new memberships for women working in cannabis. You can also find us on Clubhouse as WEIC, where we host AMA rooms with investors and recruiters and monthly open mics to introduce yourself to the community. WEIC is a community that provides resources, connections, events, and content to women working in cannabis in the U.S., Canada, and around the world where there's an interest in cannabis legalization. We welcome women who are currently working in cannabis or curious about taking a leap into the industry. Consider becoming a supporting member or supporting business for benefits and access across the network. And join us again for another conversation with very smart women in cannabis. And if you enjoyed this podcast, join us for a unique virtual leadership summit 
where we're discussing power and collaboration on July 21st. Tickets are available on Event High. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Infused, a cannabis talk show, is a -a one-of-a-kind look inside the cannabis industry. Meet the amazing people who make cannabis businesses bloom as they join host Nick with Francesca and Mike for creative cannabis conversations. Get an honest look at the business of cannabis, including trends, best and worst practices, products, education, and advocacy. Whether you're kind of curious or running a cannabis, Infused has kind of conversations that count. Infused is available on YouTube and is now streaming as part of the PodConnects network.